Well, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church, and I want to say to every one of you here, congratulations on not getting the flu. <laughs> and for those of you contagious and you don't know it, for the rest of you, so sorry, you're going to get the flu eventually. Um, my kids' school canceled school on Monday because almost all the teachers in the elementary school were sick and they couldn't get subs because they were all sick or their kids were. Isn't that crazy? So I'm actually astounded. We thought there would be like half of you in the room here today. So excited. We get to open up God's word. Um, so today we're launching a brief two-week series on the Bible, how we got it. Is it trustworthy? What's the story of the Bible? And then the third week of February, we are starting a series to the book of Exodus. Pastor Craig of Village Church East, Pastor Alex at Alliance Bible Church in Bartlett. Um, all three of us have been prepping together for some time. And so we're going to co-teach this series, each one of us at our own churches, probably swap it up and have uh, one of them come over here and swap again um, preachers just so we can keep, uh, honestly, just a much more unified approach to other evangelical churches in our community. So I'm really excited about that. But this morning, I want to share with you my three goals. Goal number one is to increase your confidence uh, in the Bible as revelation from God, his heart to your heart. I want you to open the Bible and I want to begin to put away some of the myths and the lies that may be lurking around in the recesses of your, uh, recesses of your brain and, and really help you grow in your confidence. Number two, uh, we want to help you increase your discernment. There are so many weird thoughts and ideas about the Bible, where it came from, etc. And uh, I want to just uh, share with you a small little gift that I'm giving you this morning, which is 17 pages of notes that I'm not preaching on for you. Okay. So otherwise this would be a two hour sermon and that would be the tip of the iceberg of what I really want to say on the subject. So yesterday, Pastor Craig and I, we went into the studio to record five episodes of the Q and a podcast. Um, so I took them out of my sermon, put them in there and I want to read to you the episodes. They're all going to drop at about 1230 AM this morning. So when you wake up, um, tomorrow morning, they should all be there for your listening pleasure. Here are the questions Craig and I went after. Uh, why do Catholics and Orthodox have extra books in their Old Testament canon. So if you pick up a Catholic Bible or Orthodox Bible, they have some extra books and segments of scripture. Uh, number two, what books almost didn't make the Old Testament canon? Like were there some close calls as the Jewish people were putting together the scriptures, etc.? cetera? Uh, what New Testament books, New Testament books almost didn't make it into the canon uh, or what we know as the scriptures? Uh, were there any books that were like by the hair of their chinny chin chin and why was that so? Are we missing any books of the Bible? Here's a little like insight. Um, I say yes. Craig says no. Listen to, listen to the debate. I know. It got heated and real. He almost called me not a Christian. No, I'm kidding. It's a good conversation. You'll enjoy it. Uh, number five, why did books like the Gospel of St. Thomas, the Gospel of Mary not make the canon? And so uh, you can go to our website. If you go into your podcast store, type in Village Church of Bartlett, you'll see our sermon podcast from Bartlett, from East, the Q&A podcast, a few others. And then you can get all of those uh, tomorrow morning in the way to your commute. There are roughly just under 700 Q&A podcast episodes. So most questions, you we've probably gone after them. Uh, my last objective in this message is to increase your excitement. Um, I want you to open up God's word and not just have confidence in it, but I want you to be pumped about it. I mean, God loves you and he's given us his word and he wants to know you and he wants you to be in it. He doesn't want it to be rote and stale, although sometimes we go through the rhythm and the monotony of it. But at the end of the day, God wants relationship with you and I want you to be 
excited about that. Uh, it was the year 2000. It was my freshman year at Michigan State University, uh, second semester, and I took a class called Judaism. Um, silly me, I thought I was going to get somebody who loved the Jewish people, loved the Bible, could help me understand its culture, etc. Lo and behold, uh, the teacher, uh, he basically had a sole objective from the first day of class to the end. And his sole objective was to disqualify the text as reliable, trustworthy, or valid. Every single class uh, was basically about him saying, you have heard, but I say to you, that's all um, not good, not true. Here's the real story. After about three weeks of this, I was like really honestly discouraged. And one of the experiences that I had is I felt pretty majorly duped by my youth group in my church growing up uh, during those first weeks of the class. And the author, not the author, the teacher, the professor presented things in a way that made you feel like it was the whole story. So like, if you have kids or if you've ever, like, I don't know, been a kid, you know how like, you do something bad? So you go to your mom and your dad and you tell them like half the story, right? So that like, they don't hear the other half, you kind of preempt it. But it's really not the whole story. So when you go and study it, you're like, oh, I didn't realize you left out like, some pretty pivotal, vital information. And so here's what I did. I'm feeling duped and I'm feeling frustrated. And I was going to, it's called the Reformed Christian Church. And the Reformed Christian Church is renowned for deep Bible study, theologically, theological rigor, um, lots of debate, very, very intelligent pastors and, and uh, men and women in the church. And so um, I brought my, my frustrations and my concerns to them. And, and I shared with them some of the things that the professors were, were teaching. And they invested in me for a semester to really help me learn and to look at the whole story of what was going on. What I actually realized is, um, as I got into, by the end of the semester, um, that honestly, my professor wasn't telling me actually the whole truth, and many of it wasn't actually true. And so one of the, one of the great privileges of being a Christian is you're a part of 2,000 years of Christian history that is heavily documented. Some of the best academics, theologians, philosophers, and mind the world has ever known have been followers of Christ. And in the first three to 400 years of the early church, we have so much written documentation about the thoughts and the ideas and the things that were really going on. And so what I found is he would say these things about how the Bible was developed, or he would say these things about how the Old Testament came together, and yet nowhere could we root them or these ideas in any historical literature whatsoever. It's almost like he just threw things out there and hoped that they would stick just to discourage a bunch of kids from taking seriously the Bible. And when I studied it, I actually started to read and to look at the history of what happened and from different even perspectives that were rooted in, in actual documentation. I was blown away. And my confidence in the Bible just exploded. Now, I don't have 16 hours to share with you all of the stuff that is so amazing about the Word of God. Um, what I want to do is give you a primer this morning and encourage you and share with you just some things that I've learned and some things I think are really helpful for you as you open up your Bible. My, my time of study, my, soft, my freshman year, that second semester, um, I learned a few important lessons. Uh, number one, I learned that I was not duped by my church. Um, just because my church didn't tell me every bad idea out there doesn't mean they duped me. What my church actually did is they, they gave me the foundation of what was true and real. And the more and the deeper I studied, what I realized is that most of what they taught me was grounded in facts and truth. And as I went to outside of my normal sources of study to figure out what I could trust and not trust, I realized they actually did a really good job of teaching me what was true and reliable, et cetera. 
Uh, I came to this conclusion by the end of my freshman year. Actually, my youth ministry did an incredible job training me to think, giving me the best ideas, and it was incredibly helpful. Number two, I learned that there is a difference between data and narratives. My, my issue, and you've heard me say this multiple times, and I want you to hear it over and over again. My issue with science and philosophy and history and theology and Bible interpretation, et cetera, is rarely about data points. Uh, there's no scientific truth that Christian ever needs to be afraid of. doesn't matter what it is. Truth is always true. Truth always leads to truth. The problem is when data points are used to tell narratives and stories that aren't actually true. So for example, nobody actually knows how the world came about by just looking at the, at the universe. So we take data points and scientists, secular scientists tell us this narrative. My issue isn't again with the data points. My issue is with the story they're telling with the data points. And by and large, actually there were a whole bunch of things that the professor from Michigan State University shared with me that were true but he weaved them together into a story that was actually false. And so as I was able to discern the false data points and the true data points, and then we were able to actually put together a narrative that was truly actually helpful, consistent with A, God's word, B, reality, C, history, D, archaeology, the list goes on and on. And then finally, number three, I just learned never be afraid of truth. Um, know your data points, know the narratives, know the difference, but never be afraid of it. Lean into it. Ask the hardest questions you can. Don't be afraid if somebody is going to disagree. Don't be afraid if they've got degrees after their names. Truth is always truth. And let me just tell you, just because you have a degree or don't have a degree after your name doesn't mean you're true or right. Truth is always true, and truth will lead to truth, and data will be data. Don't be afraid of it. Lean into it. Ask the hardest questions that you can. It's actually one of the cultures, uh, aspects of our culture here at the church I want to continue to develop. We want you to bring your most difficult, challenging questions to the table because if we're really going to pursue spiritual maturity. We can't turn our eyes away from some of these things. Now, what I want to share with you is two um, theological concepts. These will be very important to understand what we're talking about and what we're not talking about. Here's the first theological concept. It's called general revelation. If you don't like multisyllabic theological words, well, you can zone this part out. But general revelation. It's very actually simple. It means general things that we can know about God by observing creation. So you look at this world, you start to understand the scope of the stars and space. You realize whatever created this is unbelievably, supremely powerful. Uh, you just look at creation and you see order and you start to learn things about the artist by looking at creation. But there are limits to this. Can you look at creation and learn God's name? Can you look at creation and learn about what happens to you when you die? Can you look at creation and learn why God made all this? No, in fact, it has limits. So what we need to really make sense of this world is special revelation, which is specific things we can know about God because he tells us. So when you have the word of God, when you have the Bible, when you have the scriptures, what you're holding is special revelation. Uh, these are things that we could never know about the mind, the heart, and the plan of God without God personally telling them to us. And what I love about special revelation is that it is this wonderful reminder that God does not want us aimlessly walking through this world 
with these huge, deep, profound questions. Who are we? Who are you? How do we relate together? Is there a problem? Are you mad? Why is there so much sin in the world? What happens when I die? God didn't leave us groping. He actually graciously gave us his word, revelation of himself and reality, so that these questions could be actually answered with clarity and with simplicity and with finality. Like God is really, really gracious. And so for the Christian, the Bible is of utmost importance because it is special revelation from God himself to his people that we might be in real relationship with him. Now, if you have walked with Jesus for any level of time, eventually you're gonna struggle to some degree with the following question. Can I really, really trust the Bible? I want to tell you like four reasons why I think this question um, is understandable for most Christians living in America. Number one, um, the Bible grinds against almost every culture on earth. Like when you read the values of scripture, you compare it to any culture, excuse me, I have a deep cough. If I laugh, it just, I'm just going to start coughing. Um, any culture, the two are just not going to be on the same page. So if you're an American and you're like, I really want the Bible to validate my American worldview, it's not going to do it. And it's why the Bible upsets so many people because fundamentally the Bible, any culture it walks into, it dismantles the culture and requires the culture to be rebuilt with different foundations and values. Now, it doesn't mean every culture is always completely bad. There are redeemable aspects about every culture. But by and large, the Bible is going to enter into American culture or your family culture or whatever it is, and it is going to dismantle it and show you a better way. And so that's hard for a lot of people. The reason people don't like the Bible is because the Bible is telling them not just that there's a better way, but that their way is wrong. And that the way built on Jesus Christ and his word, the living word and the written word is infinitely better. It's really offensive but God's actually not really concerned about whether or not you think he's offensive. He's concerned with your life and with your joy and your flourishing and with your thriving. That's what he wants. And so he loves you enough to tell you the hard things. I can't tell you how many times I sit down with adults and kids and my kids, and I have to tell them things that aren't convenient to their lifestyle, but they're true and they're there for their good and they're for their thriving. This is what it means to be a dad and a mom, and this is what it means to be God. He's got a bunch of kids, and we all think we're really smart. We all think we're geniuses and our way is better. And he's like, it feels good for a moment, but it doesn't really create life and thriving. And that's what he wants to do with us. Uh, The second reason most people struggle is uh, because of a multiplicity of options. It results in intellectual uncertainty. Meaning this, that there are so many views of reality. And the more views that are there, you almost get like decision fatigue And you're like, how could they all be wrong? I mean, my goodness. And you open up the word of God and it's exclusive and it's claims. And and then it brings us to the third reason people struggle, which plays into this, which is sincere compassion. I mean, you're like, really? Could all of humanity be wrong except for Christianity in this way? Like, that feels really exclusive and limited. And then our compassion begins to like rise up as it should Because the people of God love humanity because humanity is made in the image of God, whether they're a Christian or not, whether they are kind or not. We love humanity because every person bears the image of God. And so our compassion goes up for them. And and the implications of the Bible is true on people who reject Jesus Christ are massive. And and we're hoping deep down inside, like, like we don't want hell to be real. We don't want that to be there. But then we read the Bible and we're like, but it's, it's unmistakable and you can't get away from it. Number four, pop culture myths about the Bible are everywhere. I just got to tell you, I hear some of the dumbest things on the planet said about the Bible. 
So let's just take a moment. I'm going to just erase a whole bunch of myths that are out there. And uh, here we go. Ready? The Bible was not dropped from heaven in a leather-bound book. You're aware, right? That's all right, good. I know. Boom. Like, no way. The Bible was not delivered by an angel like the Quran. The Bible was not dug up in a farmer's field in the form of golden plates like the Book of Mormon. The Bible was not suddenly discovered in a clay jar with 66 books intact. The Bible is not actually one book, but a collection of sacred books. The Bible was not written all at once, but over 16 centuries, 1500 BC to just before 100 AD. The Bible was not written in English. (laughs) But Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The Bible is not, hear this, true because a council or a church says it's true. The Bible is true because God himself inspired it. And if it is true, and if God really did inspire it, it stands to reason that he, he did not just inspire it, but he preserved it for millennia so that we could have it before us today. So here's some vocabulary I want you to know, because again, um, what I want to do is actually form in you some right minds, right ideas, but also some right history and understanding why you have the Bible that you have. All right, so here's some vocab. Um, Number one is ancient Hebrew and Aramaic. These are the original languages of the Old Testament. Um, The Hebrew language, it's called a Semitic language, and Aramaic is a very, it's also a Semitic language. It's kind of the language that the Hebrews would speak day to day. So Jesus probably spoke Aramaic, but they would read in ancient Hebrew their actual text. Um, Portions of the book of Daniel, Ezra, and some other portions are written in Aramaic, but 99% or more of the Old Testament is actually written in ancient Hebrew. The New Testament is written in what's called Koine Greek. This is different from classical Greek. Koine Greek is the common language that the common Greek people would speak on a day-to-day basis. The New Testament was written in very accessible language for anyone who is literate. Oral tradition, this is a little bit different. Uh, Before Moses, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, Have you ever wondered how Moses knew about the creation account when he wasn't alive for it? Well, it's because of oral tradition. Oral tradition is before Moses, a long, extensive history of stories meticulously memorized and retold with unusual accuracy. So there were men whose lives were devoted to memorizing perfectly the stories of history. And at the right time, Moses took these stories, penned them in what we call the law, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books. Scribes are Jewish men committed to the meticulous preservation and multiplication of scriptures, particularly Old Testament scriptures. Their entire life was devoted to perfectly copying and multiplying the text so that we never lost it, and as many people as possible could have a perfectly accurate text. Could you imagine? You're writing. You're like six months in, and you make an error that you can't undo, and you have to go burn six months of work. Oh my gosh. Talk about a stressful job. The canon. This is a word you've heard me say already, but I want to define it for you. The canon is the list of books that are recognized as scripture. Canon comes from a Greek word that means read, and a read was used as a a metric of measuring. 
And so the canon is the measuring stick by which we uh, understand a, a book is God's word. It's the standard by which all other books are measured, if you will. So when an actual text, a book, is recognized to be authoritative scripture inspired by God for the people of God, it would be recognized as canon. So in the um, canon of scripture, uh, there are 66 books in the canon. Uh, Now, is the purpose-driven life in the canon? No, because it's not inspired by God in scripture, right? There are a lot of good books out there, but it doesn't mean they are canon. These are the ones uniquely inspired by God, recognized by the church as actually the word of God. The canon, I want you to see this, does not make something scripture, but canon recognizes that which is already scripture. And so you imagine a group of spiritual leaders trying to figure out if something is canon or not. Um, I'll give you an analogy. I want you to imagine you have to go with a whole bunch of dogs and find all the mini golden doodles. So what do you do? Right? You look at what is a mini golden doodle. Unfortunately, when they're born, you can't tell between like the mini golden doodles and the, uh, like the big golden doodles. So you got to wait some time, see how they grow. Right away, you get rid of the German shepherds and the pugs and all that kind of stuff. But by recognizing the golden doodles, are you making them a golden doodle? No, you're, already, you're just recognizing that which already is. And sometimes it takes a bit of time to recognize, but that's the point of canon. Spiritual leaders, pastors uh, throughout history have taken the time to figure out which books actually are canon, and then that, those are the ones that are actually inspired. Now, here's what I want to do with you. Um, in a moment, I'm going to cough because I have to. So I'm going to mute myself, but we're going to go through the development of the Old Testament canon and the New Testament canon. So let's pause. Excuse me. I know. Thank you. That's how I feel too. For three weeks, it's just been this deep bronchial like thing. And I'm like, I feel great, but I can't laugh. Otherwise I cough. The Old Testament canon. How did the Old Testament canon develop? Uh, it developed in three ways. Uh, number one, it developed by God's orchestration. And I want you to hear this, that the Old Testament canon was not just developed by God's orchestration in the words, but in also the preservation of the words. Like there is no reason that any nation such as the Israel under attack by so many forces for so long should have ever had the scriptures preserved the way they did. And what we find is that God did not just inspire the specific words, but miraculously preserved them uh, for the people of God. In fact, uh, Romans chapter three says um, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Like this was their job. It was their job to protect the Old Testament, to compile it together, and to make sure that the people of God had it from one generation to to the next. Number two, it was developed through prophets. These are men and women who spoke for God and behalf of God to the people, God's words, so that the people would know that which is true and remember the stories that are really the stories that God wants his people to know. Uh, Number three, and this is where we're going to double click in our time, uh, the Old Testament canon progressively developed in four stages over 1,000 years. So the Old Testament canon didn't just land, like it wasn't just there one day. The Old Testament canon developed over a period of time progressively, and we're going to look at each of these stages. All right, stage number one of the Old Testament canon. Do you know, don't say it out loud, rhetorical question, see if you get it. What was the first written down words of God preserved for the people of God? The first canon. The Ten Commandments. First time God's people write something down 
and recognize the writing is close. I wanted to say Job, I did. Like, I'm feeling you, man. Um, it seems that that was oral tradition that Moses ended up writing, but the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments seemed to be it. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words. For in accordance with these words, I've made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets, the words of the covenant, the 10 commandments. Imagine in this moment, this was the totality of the written, documented canon, the word of God. There was oral tradition, don't get me wrong, right? But this was the only written on stone, permanent thing. And so here's what God wanted to do. From the very beginning, God wanted to immortalize his words to take out all the debate. Number two, stage two of the Old Testament canon is what's called law. Also called the Pentateuch, also called the Torah. Let's play a little game. Genesis, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. That's the law. That's the Torah. That's the Pentateuch. Uh, Moses wrote all, all of that except for parts of the very end. You'll know Moses didn't write it because it recorded his death. And last time I checked, you can't write when you're dead. Um, what happened with that is Joshua picked up the pen, carried on uh, Moses' tradition, and then began to write. But um, when Moses died, he left for them the law. This was their canon. This was the totality of their scripture. They're going through the wilderness on the way to the promised land, and Moses is documenting this, and he gives this to the people because this is their Bible, their canon, their scripture. The third stage is what we call the histories. This would be um, uh, Joshua, Judges, Kings, Chronicles, Samuel, all these stories and narratives about God building the nation of Israel, his set-apart people. And so here we have, we have here in, in the book of Joshua 24, Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and he put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And again, he's writing all of this stuff down. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, meaning there was a law, and now he's adding to it and continuing to tell the stories of what is happening with the people of God. And these stories continued. And if you were a Jew, what you expected is that the canon wasn't closed. As a Christian in this era, our canon is closed. We're going to get to why in a little bit. But for them, the canon was open. And so they were waiting to hear new revelation from God as progressive, God progressively revealed his nature and his character through prophets and writings. Stage four of the Old Testament canon is what's called the writings. This would be poetry, wisdom, literature, etc., Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, the Psalms, etc. By the time you get to the New Testament era, you get to Jesus, um, they had this fully formed view of the Old Testament. And they used different words to describe it. They had these catch-all phrases. But Jesus himself says, uh, these are my words, which I spoke to you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he's kind of giving these catch-all terms as he looks back over the Old Testament. And he's even recognizing that there were progressive stages by which the Old Testament canon developed. Now, it's very interesting because in around 100 AD, there was a council of Jewish scholars um, in a city called Jamnia. And what these Jewish scholars did is with finality, because there was some disagreement with some Christians, um, what they did is they finally, with clarity, closed the Old Testament canon and they documented um, the books that you would have in your Protestant Old Testament as the actual books um, of the Old Testament canon. And uh, so very good to know that the actual 
canon that Jesus used. His Old Testament's called the Palestinian canon. Um, that is the canon that is in the Protestant Bible as well. So be encouraged. The canon of the apostles and of Jesus himself um, actually is the canon that you have in your Bible. Let's go over this again. Old Testament canon developed, number one, by God's orchestration through prophets and progressively in four stages over 1,000 years. Isn't that crazy? Now, let's go to the New Testament, and you're going to see a little bit different of a story. The New Testament canon, number one, was written by God's orchestration. We see this. God is working through um, men, particularly in the New Testament, inspiring them, moving them to write the words he wants through their unique personalities. But rather than actually prophets, it's written through apostles. And so the apostles are a group of men designated by Jesus Christ himself to lay the foundation of the church. And so as the apostles documented and wrote letters, these letters were set aside to be canon or to be scripture because their fundamental job was to lay the foundation of the church. The reason our canon is closed is because when the apostles die, there is no more foundation laying for the church. And so the church closed the canon with the death of the apostles. The apostle John was probably the last one to be alive, and his writings really were the summation of the apostolic writings. And so the church, from the, from the very beginning, from the death of the apostles, closed that canon and realized God's word was given to the early church, to this new covenant community, through these specific men who were designated by God with authority to write this. But number three, what we find is, unlike the Old Testament, which took over a thousand years, the New Testament quickly came together in the first century, probably between 30 to 70 years in that period of time, very quickly. Uh, Number two, how did the early church determine which books were going to be in the New Testament canon? So I want to remind you of their goal, okay? Let's say you are all pastors in the first couple centuries of the church. Is your goal to make up books of the Bible. No, no, that would be unethical and deceptive, okay? Your goal is to find those writings which were truly apostolic. And your goal is to preserve and to multiply those. Your goal is also to find writings that you know are not written by the apostles. And your goal is to say the truth about those books. Doesn't mean they're all bad, but we want to know which books were certainly written by the apostles. Now, um, as of about the middle of the second century onwards, there's a group of people called the Gnostics, and and they started writing multiple, multiple volumes of literature. They were not orthodox. They didn't believe what the Bible taught. Um, But in Gnostic tradition, they tried to validate themselves by taking the names of biblical authors, and then they would write these books that had nothing to do with biblical doctrine whatsoever. And there were tons and tons and tons of Gnostic books And so the early church had to kind of figure out, okay, which ones are apostolic and which ones weren't. Again, one of the things that the early church did incredibly well is they wrote everything. They documented so much. There were so many letters. And the the really neat thing is that as the apostles all died, they all had people that they mentored. Uh, It's very reasonable. If I was a pastor at the end of the second century, I was mentored by the guy who was mentored by John or Peter. Like we're talking two generations away from knowing the actual apostles. And so there's incredible amounts of evidence that led the early church to finally conclude and say, no, these are apostolic in nature and these ones are not. Uh, They had four criteria that they had to use in order to recognize something as scripture, uh, as canon. Here's the first one. It had to be apostolic. Uh, It had to be verifiably, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, written and approved by apostles. Uh, Number two, it had to be accepted. Uh, It had to be accepted particularly by uh, the first and second century church as authoritative. 
Because if it really was an apostolic writing very early on, you would have evidence that people understood it to be apostolic. Like if a book just pops out of nowhere in about 175 AD, um, probably not apostolic because there would have been some kind of written proof about it before that. So they're looking for early acceptance. They're looking for consistency. Um, if you read some of these Gnostic Gospels, you pick them up. I don't, even if you've read the Bible a handful of times, you will know immediately by how weird the books are that they are not consistent with the vibe and the feel of Scripture. Scripture has a, an unusual level of consistency to it, even from author to author. And you start picking up these Gnostic Bibles, and you're like, okay, this stuff is just straight up weird. Uh, they're saying weird things about weird people, and it's just you know right away, like, this is not consistent. And then finally, it has to be orthodox, or it has to actually affirm the major doctrines of the church. Because if it is apostolic, is it going to contradict truth? And the answer is no. So they're looking at the content of these things. And so um, over a couple hundred years, the uh, spiritual leaders of the early church were able to gather this information and were finally able to make some really confident, unbelievably clear declarations about which books were and were not canon. So when was the canon finalized? Well, here's the most simple way to say it. The first time we received the 27 books of our New Testament in one place, in one writing, it's the letter, Easter letter of Athanasius in 367 AD. Athanasius was an incredibly powerful and influential pastor, preserved uh, good teaching and the gospel for his generation. Really amazing guy, really beautiful story. Um, but he's the first time that somebody actually compiled together these 27 books that you would have in your New Testament. In 393 AD, there was a, a synod, which is a gathering of spiritual leaders in a place called Hippo. No actual hippos, just that's the location. And they came together. And after looking at the preponderance of evidence, finally made the official call for the church, all the spiritual leaders from all over the known world came together and said, we can say with absolute certainty and clarity, these are the 27 books. Now, what's interesting is if you read a lot of conspiracy theory nowadays, um, what they'll tell you is there was some kind of like political objective and uh, weird um, things that were added to the text, etc. Here's an interesting little like just reality. The church, the early church has documented everything. It's just an unbelievable amount of literature from the first couple hundred years of the church. Never, ever once anywhere will you find conspiracy. Never. Never once is that even being hinted at. They're new accusations that people just kind of throw out and they hope it sticks to discredit the quality and the veracity of the Bible, the trustworthiness and the truthfulness of scripture. But they actually, a lot of these accusations have literally not one ounce of historical rooting in any documentation anywhere whatsoever. Isn't that interesting? Anybody can say anything, but it doesn't make it true. Unfortunately, when so many lies get put out, people feel like, well, how do we even know what's true anymore? And thankfully, there are people smarter than all of us in this room who spend a lot of time looking at original documentation, speaking and reading dead languages, and can see very clearly what conspiracies were there and which ones weren't. Now, here's a question you should be asking. Okay, Pastor Michael, it's a little concerning that it took 300 years to finalize this canon. Like, what, what was going on that it took them that long? Why wasn't it just simple and easy and like no problem? Well, I'll give you two reasons. Number one, Christianity was illegal. Uh, number two, Christianity was severely persecuted. And so I want to I read to you from a section of a commentary that I found really helpful. 
Christianity was not legal until 325 AD. And so you'll notice that once it became legal, they actually had the ability to write more publicly and gather the spiritual leaders of the empire, if you will, um, together to actually make decisions. And FYI, when you don't have the kind of technology that we have today, getting spiritual leaders from all over the known world to land in one place isn't something that happens by a phone call or a letter, right? It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. Christianity was not legal till 325 AD, and before that, emperors were seeking to destroy Christianity. The empire-wide Diocletian persecutions in the years 303 to 313 AD is just one example of why consensus on the canon was so difficult. Included, this included the forcing of Christians to hand over their sacred writings to the Romans to be burned. When the persecution began, churches had to decide which books were sacred to them, and which could be handed over to authorities. They tried to preserve the sacred writings, often by handing over to the authorities only the writings of lesser importance. Persecution, distance, catch this, from Spain to India, and from Russia to Africa, that's like quite a bit of real estate, by the way, without planes, trains, and automobiles, language barriers, poverty, lack of technology, lack of literacy, and differing ideas made finalizing a canon quickly near impossible. So when I look at the numbers and the context and the persecution and the actual time it took them to come to consensus, you're really looking at from like 325 AD to 393 AD, and in light of this context and culture and the breadth of geography that they were covering, this to me is a miracle that they gather consensus from that many parts of the world as quickly as they actually did. Now here's a question for you. Have you ever wondered why the New Testament books are ordered the way they are? Let me tell you. This might be new for some of you. I think this is one of my favorite parts of the sermon. Well, the Gospels and Acts are first because it's the story of Jesus, and Jesus is the central figure of the entire Bible. So I felt right to these guys to put the Gospels and Acts right where they should be. But all of Paul's letters actually follow right after that. Um, Why? Because he was considered to be the most important and most influential apostles of the time. His writings were the most clear, the most foundational. And so they took all of his writings and they put them first. Hebrews follows Paul's writing because nobody could really figure out whether or not Paul wrote it. Because the author of Hebrews doesn't actually identify himself. And so there was all this early debate. Who wrote Hebrews? Who didn't? And I am 99% convinced Paul didn't write it. But they put it there because they're like, all right, here, we'll put that there. Um, by and large, the letters are, are done in order of quantity of words, greatest to least. Go figure that one out. That applies about 90, most of the time, most of the time on that. After that are the general epistles, which are actually some of the most controversial letters. In fact, all the controversy of what should be included in the canon started with the book of Hebrews and went all the way to the book of Revelation. Those are the books where the most amount of debate actually actually happened. And then Revelation got put at the end because, honestly, what other book would you put at the end of the Bible? Like, read the book. It ends like, like there is no better ending than Revelation. That's just logic. Um, somebody sent this to me a while ago, and um, I am pretty confident they wrote it because I have copied and pasted this into Google to try to find its origins, and I can't find it anywhere. So I'm going to give them credit. The Bible is a miracle. It is miraculous in its unity. It is miraculous in its preservation over millennia despite wars, despots, and persecution. It is miraculous in its historical accuracy validated through archaeology. It is miraculous in its theology, consistency, and theme. 
It is miraculous in its unity of thought despite multiple cross-cultural authors not knowing one another. It is miraculous in its sheer organization. It is miraculous in its power to change lives. It is miraculous in its power to change cultures and nations. The canon is a miracle. The canon is comprised of 66 books written by more than 40 authors. These authors, catch this, were kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, scholars, historians, prophets, tax collectors, tent makers, military leaders, prime ministers, and doctors. They wrote from dungeons, palaces, roads, islands, hillsides, and deserts across Africa, Asia, and Europe. These authors wrote these books in their original languages, which included Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Their literary styles included poetry, history, letters, prophecy, proverbs, and biography. The time frame of its writing occurred over 1,500 years with no material inconsistencies or contradictions. The Bible remains one unified masterpiece from beginning to end. This impossible consistency screams of a divine architect who purposely and seamlessly moved men and women to record his words throughout continents, cultures, and history. But God did not just inspire each author's content. He also orchestrated each book's place in what we call the canon. I love that. So what? Number one, God loves you. Like he could have left us groping, but he reveals to satisfy and to answer the deepest questions of the human soul. He reveals so that as we grope for answers, we would find them and we would run to himself. Uh, Number two, God wants you to know him personally. The Bible is not a textbook to be studied simply to have knowledge acquisition. It is a self-revelation of God to each one of us. And God's objective has always been personal relationship. It's why he calls himself father in us, sons and daughters. It's why he even created like, the experience that we have of the family unit of mothers and fathers because he's giving us a tangible, physical, experiential picture of the kind of relationship that he has created us to have with himself. Number three, life experience, archaeological data, history, and logic will never invalidate the Bible. Don't be afraid of it. Lean into the data. Be careful of the narratives. The data, data is data. And sometimes we think we have data only to find out that the data was flawed. Understand that that happens more times than people would like to admit. Don't be afraid of truth. Lean into it. Ask the hardest questions. Truth always leads to truth. And finally, number four, the Bible. This might be a little strange for some, but the Bible cannot be truly trusted until you first trust in Jesus. You can understand the Bible, don't get me wrong. Like anybody who can read and think and has a clear head, you can look at it and you can understand the concepts. When somebody trusts in Christ, you are given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit interacts with the word of God differently than just the human spirit alone. The Holy Spirit illumines and convicts and trains and helps. It forms Christ in us. And without the Holy Spirit, the Bible is a book just to be learned. But with the Holy Spirit, the Bible is a book that you can engage with and engage God on a personal level and you can be personally transformed by it. 
I want to share with you two passages of scripture that I just, I found very striking. Luke uh, 24, verse 44 and 45. Jesus is speaking and he says, these are my words, which I spoke to you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Remember that? Well, he goes on. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Don't get me wrong. They understood cognitively what it was saying. But it required Jesus opening their minds to understand the point and himself in a way that was past intellectual, but actually moved to the heart. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 14 says this, but their minds were hardened for to this day, when they read the old covenant, the Bible, the old Testament, that veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. You can understand the Bible. Anybody can. But you cannot experience personal transformation and relationship with God through the Bible without the Spirit of God until he takes away the veil and gives you that spirit. I went up to my professor at Michigan State and I asked him the following question about halfway through the semester. I said, what do you believe? And he began to tell me about his master's degree at a master of divinity, master's in Jewish studies, a master in Islamic studies, PhDs, blah, 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 blah. And I listened and I just said, but what do you believe? Like, what do you believe? And he said to me, I don't really believe anything. Veil. The man has actually access to deep study of the word of God, but it has no power to transform his mind or his heart. Why? Because he had no relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. None whatsoever. And so I think one of the, one of the first things that we tell people, if you really, really want to know the Bible, the first place to start is by placing your faith in Jesus Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit. It changes everything, everything about your life. God moves from an idea to a relationship and it will be hands down the most powerful decision you ever make. I want to close with an encouragement. There's a, um, a, a group of researchers called the Center for Bible Engagement. And uh, here's what they've done. They've researched over 400,000 Christians who regularly read the Bible, 75 uh, denominations, especially churches, schools, general population. I mean, they've done a lot of research. They've been going on for years and years and years and years and years. Go back to the, go to the next slide. Here's what they found. They found that the power of four, this is going to be weird, but just go with this for a moment. Uh, there's something about when somebody reads the Bible four times a week. So here's what they found. Um, I actually read their, their uh, uh, thesis, their entire article, sorry, um, and their research report. Super interesting um, reading through this. Uh, one of those things that kind of just sucked me in. I was like, no way. Years of research, and here's what they found. If you read the Bible one time a week, it's good, right? It has an effect. But the effect, it's pretty minimal. You read the Bible two times a week. That's better. But the effect actually is still fairly minimal. You read the Bible three times a week, and you're like, yay me, I'm reading the Bible three times a week. And the effect was greater, but still fairly minimal. And then in all their research, they got to the people who read the Bible four times a week. And everything changed. So here's a few stats. 
228% more likely to share their faith with others, 407% more likely to memorize scripture, 59% less likely to view pornography, 30% less likely to struggle with loneliness, I have a few others, 50% less likely of getting drunk, 68% less likely of sex outside of marriage, 74% less likely uh, to gamble. Like the list goes on and on. Every metric shot through the roof at four times. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, read the Bible four times. I'm just looking at the stats and saying, wow, that's actually really striking and interesting. That if you look across the board, when somebody makes this a part of the majority of their week, it actually has a measurable statistical transformation on their life. A person's relationship with the Bible, God through the reading of scripture with the spirit of God on a daily basis has a powerful ability to transform your life. Now we've been sharing with you guys, we want you to be in the Bible daily, seven days a week. And by the way, like that's not meant to be like this impossible goal where you heap condemnation on yourself whenever you fail. Sorry, I'm laughing again at the very thought that, anyways, don't laugh, Michael. No joy today. All right, (laughs) trying. Go for four days, right? Heck, go for five. And then when you mess up one, you're back at four and watch life transformation happen. And again, I just love how gracious God is. He's not like, not enough. He's, he's like, I want to be in relationship with you and I love you. And what I want to do is increase your confidence, your discernment, and especially your excitement to get into God's word. So if there's anything, anything at all that we can do to help you grow in your relationship with God through his word, please don't hesitate to ask. We have unbelievable resources and we'd love to come alongside of you and help you. I want to take a moment, I want to pray for you and then we're going to celebrate communion together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for clarity. Thank you for your preservation of your word. Thank you for giving us your living word, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for covering our sins. Thank you for teaching and training. Thank you for giving us the apostles who, who walked with you and then documented your writings, your sayings, who, who wrote these for us so that we could know what is true and what is real Thank you for your spirit, which illuminates all of this. God, you have been so good to us. And so God, I pray that you would help us grow in our relationship with you through your word. So we need your help. We need your training. Thank you for the preponderance of resources that we have. Unbelievable. Access to everything here and now. God, you've taken away every excuse. Thank you for for giving us your people, your word, your son, your spirit, everything. Help us. Help us become more like Jesus. Help us know you more personally. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.